This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Regardless of your residency program year, the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Platform, developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, is right for you. Free to residents, ROC is an online learning program that covers 11 subspecialty areas with content that's been authored and curated by some of the leading names in orthopedics. And residents can access content for free at rock.aos.org. Get started today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed Ortho Podcast. You are tuned into our OITE slash our board review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine, and we are going to talk some more pediatrics. We are going to talk some C-spine conditions in this episode, and if you have not already, go and check out our podcast companion book. It is out there. It is out there for you to check out and follow along if you want to. Uh, it goes exactly along with this podcast audio. Um, there are areas that you can take notes. There's timestamps. So uh, I hope that you all are enjoying that. And without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Now we talked about, you know, scoliosis as far as congenital. We talked about infantile scoliosis, now adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. Uh, what are some causes of neuromuscular scoliosis, which are their, their own kind of kind of breed on how you treat these patients? Yeah, so neuromuscular scoliosis is uh, kind of a, a whole different um, kind of animal. It's Typically, I mean, the patients are already more sick to begin with. So you're thinking like the, the Rett syndrome, cerebral palsy type patients, muscular dystrophy, uh, those who have had polio, uh, those with spina bifida or other spinal cord injuries that they may have had a normal spine when they were younger, but when they were uh, eight, nine years old, they, they had a horrific like car crash or they got hit by a car and then they had some spinal fractures that then now their spine is going to grow abnormally and develop scoliosis. And, um, and then there's also spinal muscular atrophy. And uh, the reason why I say spinal muscular atrophy is because the uh, boards will always leave a sour taste in my mouth um, because <laughs> of a question that I may or may not have had. I can neither confirm nor deny because I'm not <laughs> technically allowed to uh, state questions that I've had before, maybe, mm -hmm. I don't know. It was, a, it was a long time ago when I took the test, but I was tested on the mechanism of action of nusinersen, which is a really? medication, uh, that is used for spinal muscular atrophy. And that's what the question was. It wasn't this fancy, uh, question stem that was a paragraph long and all this stuff. The question, all the question was, what is the mechanism of action of nusinersen? And I had, I had never heard of it before, but for those of you out there, it's a medication used to treat spinal muscular atrophy. And uh, I still don't know uh, what, uh, what it does or how it's used. So if you want to look it up, you may, you may get a free uh, answer on the test if they're still using that question. No, hopefully not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Um, but again, yeah, so you're just thinking about the the neurologic type of causes of scoliosis. So the CP patients, the spinal muscular atrophy, muscular dystrophy, um, polio type patients that lead into the neuromuscular scoliosis. And um, is bracing as affected for the neuromuscular type scoliosis compared to AIS? No, it's not. It's not as effective. And we'll touch on some neuromuscular uh, disorders a little bit later. But, you know, you try to brace some of these patients that have these neuromuscular scoliosis. They can actually come with more complications. They can have like wound problems. Uh, you can call it, I mean, skin problems, um, some skin breakdown in, in, in some areas. So um, it is not uh, it is not as effective uh, in treating neuromuscular scoliosis as it is for adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. And we can just quickly touch base on one of these um, types of, of conditions, but what is the inheritance of neurofibromatosis? Yeah, that is, it, you may just be distinctly asked that question right there. And you have to know that neurofibromatosis or NF is autosomal dominant and spine manifestations are very common for neurofibromatosis. So what are the really the two types of scoliosis that you can see with NF patients? Yeah, so this is going to be dystrophic um, scoliosis and uh, and then non-dystrophic uh, scoliosis, um, and I mean those are those are the the, the two parts. Um, and so severe dystrophic um, scoliosis changes are going to be associated with a, a faster deterioration of the of curve progression. So they, they do a little bit worse when you have dystrophic um, scoliosis and neurofibromatosis. So what are the what are some of the characteristics of dystrophic um, neurofibromatosis? Yeah, the dystrophic is going to be more of a uh, combined kyphoscoliosis. Um, they may have shorter and sharper curves, whereas adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, you're going to see curves that are kind of spanning maybe seven or eight different vertebral bodies, but the um, dystrophic neurofibromatosis type scoliosis are going to have short, sharp segments of just like three vertebral bodies that have a very large cob angle. Um, you can have something called rib penciling, which essentially is a really thinned out rib. And then you can also see vertebral scalloping um, and enlarged uh, foramina. Those are the kind of the key things to look for in dystrophic type neurofibromatosis uh, scoliosis. And so what is the uh, treatment for it? Yeah, so it's going to be a fusion. So um, for this, it's going to be anterior and posterior spinal fusion with instrumentation. Um, you know, it's because in these patients that have neurofibromatosis, if you just do a um, a posterior spinal fusion, pseudoarthrosis is a little bit more common. So you want to do an anterior and posterior um, spinal fusion. Again, in these patients that have dystrophic scoliosis uh, associated with neurofibromatosis. And um, you mentioned this briefly a little bit earlier, but uh, what is a sign of Schuerman's kyphosis on x-rays? So Schuerman's kyphosis is pretty much uh, a pure uh, kyphosis in the thoracic region where you're going to have uh, greater than five degrees of wedging uh, on three consecutive uh, vertebrae. Um, you may also see things like Schmorl's nodes, and Schmorl's nodes are a herniation of the disc, but it's into the either inferior or superior uh, vertebral body. It does not protrude into the 
uh, foramina or into the spinal canal. It, it goes into the bone superior or inferior. Those are what kind of Schmorl's nodes are. Um, and that's going to lead to irregularities in the end plate um, and then also disc narrowing. You, As that um, wedging occurs on the anterior portion of the spine in those three consecutive uh, vertebral bodies, that disc is going to get very narrow because of that excess pressure that's being placed on it. And what's the uh, overall treatment for Schuerman's kyphosis? Yeah, so um, I mean, a lot of it it's non-op, but you you'll treat this operatively. Um, well, let me start. So, it curves or kyphosis from fifty to seventy degrees. You can you can brace these, and when you brace these, you're bracing them for a long time. You're bracing them for like almost eighteen months. So again, you're bracing these uh, patients for for a good amount of time. So any curves um, or kyphosis between fifty and seventy degrees, you're bracing them. Uh, curves greater than 75 degrees or, you know, curves that are rapidly progressing, or if you have a neurological deficit, these can be treated with a posterior spinal fusion with instrumentation uh, with or without an anterior release. Cause again, they're really kyphotic. So sometimes you may need to do an anterior release to um, help with that correction of the kyphosis. Uh, but again, so curves greater than 75 degrees. I mean, if you just think of a 90 degree curve in your spine, you know, that's, that's, just, that's pretty bad, uh, especially in the sagittal plane. Um, so I think we've covered at least scoliosis for the, for the next part. And we can test base on some more PD, PD pod spine here and, and talk a little bit about spondylolysis and spondylolisthesis. Um, so what should you be concerned about in a 14-year-old gymnast with low back pain and tight hamstrings? That is pretty classic for spondylolysis, which is essentially a fracture of the pars interarticularis of the L5 vertebral body. Um, and it's more of a stress fracture. And again, they're kind of pointing you towards, uh, I mean, it, it's not necessarily the female triad that we had talked about before with like the um, absence of periods, uh, poor diet or, or low calorie intake and uh, low uh, overall uh, kind of weight for the um, female athlete triad. This is still a stress fracture, but because these gymnasts put such a big stress on their lumbar spine while they're doing all of their kind of flips and bounds and back handsprings and that sort of stuff, you can get a stress fracture right in that region. And that's called spondylolysis. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Are you an orthopedic resident? Then you need to know about ROCK. It's a new resident orthopedic core knowledge program developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Created for U.S. residency programs and free to residents, ROCK covers 11 subspecialties and is filled with in-depth, comprehensive content and quizzes that have been authored and vetted by some of the leading experts in orthopedics. This all-in-one curriculum will give you the foundation and knowledge you need to become a successful board-certified orthopedic surgeon. And remember, access to ROCK content is free to residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. And what's the most uh, that you will be asked this at one point, either on ABOS or during the five years of your uh, uh, OITE uh, career, what is the most sensitive test for spondylolysis in patients with normal x-rays? Yep. So this is going to be a SPECT, um, a SPECT uh, 
test. So again, it's going to SPECT is a single photon emission computerized tomography. So SPECT, um, that is what you get. I, I think I, I got this wrong on either an OIT or some questions because they had oblique films in there. And I, I remember people talking about oblique films of the spine a lot. And you, you get that like snotty, snotty nut dog or so, so some some animal that you could see on yeah, the oblique. Dog. <laughs> That's what it is, right? Uh, that you can see on the oblique films. And I put that, but no, you need to know it is a SPECT. Uh, so again, a, a SPECT is going to be the most sensitive test for spondylolysis uh, in patients with normal x-rays. Now, what is the Meyerding classification for spondylolisthesis or or a slip in the vertebra? So the Meyerding is uh, based off a lateral of the lumbosacral junction, and it's looking at the degree of slip of the uh, either L5 on S1 or L4 on L5, and a grade one is uh, less than 25% of the um, AP distance of the vertebral body is anterior. Um, then grade two is 25 to 50. Grade three is 50 to 75. Grade four is 75 to 100%. And then grade five is, they call it spondyloptosis, which is essentially the entire vertebral body has shifted anterior to the uh, inferior segment and is uh, no longer even kind of in the same zip code, unfortunately, for lack of a better way to describe it. Um, but uh, what is the overall treatment for spondylolysis? Yep. Yeah, so for a symptomatic spondylolysis that may have either grade one or grade two spondylolisthesis, uh, the treatment is going to be, you know, bracing. So lumbosacral arthroses, physical therapy and activity modification. So um, symptomatic spondylolysis, again, first line treatment is going to be non-operative um, therapy, activity modification, lumbosacral arthrosis, and even if they have grade one or two spondylolisthesis. Um, for patients that have kind of these chronic spondylolysis um, that with that has not gotten better with uh, non-operative management, these are patients that you go for a PARS repair, or if there's disc desiccation on that you may see on a, on MRI, the a fusion may also be an uh, an option for them for so a posterior spinal fusion. So that's spondylolysis. What is the treatment for spondylolisthesis? Again, we're talking PD pod spine. Uh, yeah, just like you had uh, kind of mentioned, uh, for these low grades uh, uh, slips, it's just going to be PT and activity modification. Um, one question, I think it was on my boards. Um, the patient was not a gymnast. They were a, uh, a lineman, and they had... Mm. Uh, low back pain and there it showed a spect and it was positive but because they were already skeletally mature it was more of an adult spine question um uh what was the treatment for it and for those um for ones that are uh, uh a little bit higher grade either or they're a high level athlete or they um, have a higher grade slip you're going to do a posterior spinal fusion with instrumentation um, in situ for a low grade slip, or if it's a high grade slip, you want to attempt a reduction just to stabilize the construct as much as possible. And it's usually, um, 
L4 to S1, and you don't have to do a long segment fusion. Um, you just want to go the uh, vertebral body above and vertebral body below. And as most of them are L5 on S1, you fuse L4 to uh, S1. And then um, what you do want to be careful of is that L5 nerve root injury is in a L5 to S1 slip. So um, you want to just be, be cognizant of that sort of stuff when you're doing that fusion. Um, then there's a, a syndrome called the Klippel-Feel syndrome. What are the, the kind of manifestations of Klippel-Feel? Yeah, so now we're, we're kind of getting into a little bit to the cervical spine in, in these pediatric patients. So um, so they're gonna this is going to be a, a segmentation failure of the cervical spine. So they may um, show up with decreased range of motion, um, a springle deformity, which we'll uh, discuss a little bit later, but that, that's kind of looking at the scapula and you may have a, a little bit higher of a scapula. Um, again, these patients may have a lower hairline, scoliosis. They also can have a short, broad neck, torticollis. Uh, and again, like I just said, a high scapula with some jaw anomalies um, and also basilar invagination. And a lot of these syndromes, you just I don't know. It's just a straight memorization. You know, you just got to like see it a bunch of times before you try to uh, remember it or see some um, pictures that'll help you remember. Or if you see patients with this, obviously that'll help too. Um, but like kind of get into, into these syndromes, um, you know, I think the repetition, repetition is key. So for this Klippel-Feel syndrome, again, C-spine um, segmentation failure. So they have decreased range of motion. They have a sprinkle deformity, low hairline, scoliosis, a short, broad neck, torticollis, um, jaw anomalies, and, and basilar invagination. Uh, yeah, that's going to be seen there. So what C-spine abnormalities are going to be associated with Down syndrome. Yeah, the Down syndrome patients have more of a uh, uh, C1, C2 anomalies rather than like C5, 6, and 7 anomalies. And so you're going to see the um, atlanto-occipital hypermobility and atlanto-axial instability, uh, meaning that there's either more hypermobility at the occiput in C1 or instability at C1, C2. That's the atlantoaxial instability. Um, and uh, what's another condition that you can see atlantoaxial instability in? So again, Down syndrome is going to be the big one that you just mentioned. Juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. So anything that, you know, because rheumatoid is going to call that, going to cause that like periarticular erosions that commonly happen at C1 and C2. And then and any of the dysplasias as well. We'll talk about the dysplasias a little bit later on in this talk. Um, but again, atlantoaxial instability is going to be seen in Down syndrome, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, and then the dysplasias. So you treat this with a posterior spinal fusion if the atlantodens interval is greater than five. And, uh, and revert back to some of our spine talks if you want to get a little bit more in depth on the ADI. But again, this is going to be looking at a lateral and you're looking at flexion and extension and you're looking at how much that interval widens. So again, so you want to treat this with a posterior spinal fusion if the ADI is greater than five. Um, but patients that have Down syndrome, you want their ADI to be greater than, sem uh, greater than 10 before you treat them with a posterior spinal fusion or if they're symptomatic. Um, so... Again, we'll just cover this for repetition cases. What is the treatment of a Down syndrome patient with an ADI less than five um, without uh, symptoms? Yeah, or between so five and 10. 
yeah, between five and 10 without symptoms, um, that's going to be observation. And you don't even, you don't necessarily have to put them into a, a neck immobilizer um, just because that's where they live is between that five to 10. There's a little bit of laxity there, um, but you'd want them to avoid high impact sports. So uh, things like gymnastics, where they have a high risk of kind of falling on their head or things like football or rugby, because they're, um, I mean, there's a lot of youth groups out there that are now working with um, either patients with Down syndrome or other uh, disabilities that um, they want to get them into uh, more kind of mainstream sort of sports. And so they are playing like football or they are uh, doing more high impact sort of stuff. And so if they do have an ADI between five and 10, um, you kind of have to shut them down in those high impact sports. And then um, if they do have an ADI greater than five um, and less than 10, and they have symptoms of uh, uh, kind of C1, 2 instability or or C1, C2 neurologic dysfunction, you have to operate on those and stabilize that joint. And um, uh, can an os uh, odontoidium cause C1, 2 instability? Uh, short answer is yes, but in, in the patients that have this osodontoidium, the odontoid process uh, is actually going to be separated from the body of the axis. Um, so how you want to treat these. So if there is instability or they have an ADI um, greater than 10 millimeters, you want to treat, treat this with a fusion. So you fuse C1 and C2. Uh, and you also limit um, contact sports as well. So uh, patients that have this osodontoidium. So uh, if there's instability present, again, ADI greater than 10 millimeters, you're going to fuse them and limit their contact sports. Uh, what are some causes of atlantoaxial rotary displacement? Uh, so I never actually saw this, but it's something that they like to test on because it's an interesting idea or concept, but you can get upper respiratory infections and it's called gristle syndrome, and it can relate. And basically, they'll have a torticollis-like picture where their spine is, their head is rotated secondary to an upper respiratory infection. And I think it's because all of those tissues in the back of the throat and mouth where the tonsils are get inflamed, and they push on the neck in such a way that they cause this rotatory displacement. That's my thought on it. I don't know if that's actually how it happens, but when I think about it, it makes sense to me. Um, yep. And so what you want to do is you want to do a CT scan with uh, fine cuts at C1, C2, meaning like one millimeter cuts. Um, and they can show any C1, C2 subluxation or gross displacement. Um, and then uh, say you see that in a patient, they, they either, the question stems says that last week they had a severe upper respiratory infection where they we're in the ER overnight and now they're at home and they tell their mom that they can't turn their head. Um, what's the initial treatment for this? So you're going to start them off. You know, you kind of start from least invasive to more invasive things down the line. So you start them off with NSAIDs. Uh, you tell them to rest, give them a soft collar. So if after one week they still have symptoms, then you put them in halter traction, um, not halo traction, but um, halter uh, traction. So again, symptoms 
after one week you put them in halter traction and uh if you google a picture of this you'll see uh, a little bit uh of what that is but it's kind of these straps that go around the chin and in the back of the head and um this kind of gives you a little bit of traction just like the name but then if they continue to have symptoms um after a month then you would transition them to either halo or a rigid brace and if the neurologic involvement continues and you then you do a posterior spinal fusion. So again, treatment algorithms start off NSAIDs, rest, soft collar. If after a week they still have symptoms, change to halter traction. If after a month, then you change to a halo or a rigid brace. And if they still continue to have neurological involvement, the last kind of line of treatment is going to be a posterior spinal fusion. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We hope that you all enjoyed it. We hope that you all are following along with our podcast companion book for our OITE social board review series. And we hope that you tell one person about it. Just share it with one person and leave us a review. That would help out so much. All right. Until next time.